Hello, my name is Kristen Gutu, and this is Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Today's episode will be discussing what is currently unfolding in Palestine and in Israel. And before I have anyone click off due to their strong beliefs, please reconsider. The goal of this podcast is to encourage civil but provocative discussions. How are we supposed to learn if we refuse to listen to what is hard? We are here to discuss how social media, how technology, how perspective, how data, how marketing, and how storytelling can manipulate what we think we know and influence us to believe and support something we might not believe or support otherwise. In the hype of ChatGPT and generative AI, I think it is further eye-opening to hear ChatGPT's thoughts on the matter. When asked if it thinks Palestinians deserve freedom, ChatGPT's response is, and I quote, The question of whether Palestinians deserve to be free is a complex and contentious issue that depends on one's perspective and political beliefs. Different individuals and groups hold varying opinions on this matter. I will end the quote there. However, when asked if Israelis deserve freedom, ChatGPT strongly supports they do. Their answer is, and I quote, yes. Just like any other group of people, Israelis deserve to be free again. I will end the quote there. ChatGPT says that just like any other group, Israelis deserve to be free. But ChatGPT does not believe that Palestinians are deserving of the same human right. And why is that the case? If ChatGPT is an unconscious entity that has no ability to think for itself, then what are we feeding these technologies to output such horrendous and concrete beliefs? How do these technologies use human biases as input to further prime those that do not have access to better information? How do these technologies manipulate the way we think? And on that note, I would like to now introduce our guest, Mark Getzoff. He is a technology and data professional with a passion for the history of the Middle East. He holds a master's in economics from New York University and has studied extensively the histories of Israel, Palestine, and the surrounding region. While not a professional in history or politics, he brings in a nuanced perspective based on geopolitics and how the stories of these two nations continue to develop. It is important to note that it is neither my nor Mark's intentions to convince our listeners to feel hatred towards either side. We need to approach this situation, as with most delicate situations, with open hearts and the intention of understanding both sides' perspectives. That said, thank you so much for being here with us, Mark. Can you please start by giving us a further introduction of yourself and how you've become interested in these matters over the years? Sure thing. And thank you so much for that introduction. Apart from having gone to Cornell University and having studied industrial labor relations with a minor in economics, and then furthering that with a master's in economics at New York University, I find myself really drawn to studying the history of the Middle East, not just because of its ancient heritage, not just because I am Jewish, and therefore I find a very significant uh, cultural aspect to it, but also because the situation there continues to develop year after year amongst many countries that are in flux. 
So whether it's civil conflict, whether it's civil strife, whether it is new governments forming or collapsing, the Middle East is very interesting from a geopolitical perspective. And that is why I've always been interested in it, on keeping tabs on the news. And that is why the recent two weeks have definitely been very busy for me, uh, basically distracting myself from work by going down rabbit holes of news. And we've been discussing the developing events a bit over these last few days. And when I first mentioned some facts to you, my timeline started in 1948. So you made the very important note that it goes back before 1948. So can you give us a little history on the conflict and how it's evolved? So I won't go back too far. Basically, we'll be going at the time of the Ottoman Empire and right after it. So essentially, a lot of Jewish people throughout history had been living in Israel and expelled and returned and expelled throughout history. This happened with the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, the uh, Greek empires, all the way up into the early 1900s. And after Jerusalem is taken by British troops against the Ottoman Empire, there is a 1917 Balfour Declaration that is essentially a statement by the British government that called for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in what was currently then Palestine. And this was despite the fact that Jewish people made up less than 15% of the population there at the time. The declaration also technically stated that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities. But it did not outline what those communities were. It didn't state what rights they had and or how they'd be protected. So akin to much of British imperial history, it stated a lofty goal, but didn't exactly lay out the specifics for anyone to follow. In the 1930s, a lot of Jews from Germany and later on what was at the time the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia and in Austria, after it was annexed by Nazi Germany, a lot of Jews are looking to flee the region in Europe. And Consequently, at the the same time, essentially 32 countries convened in France to discuss resettlement, but while many of them expressed sympathy for Jewish refugees, most of them declined to take them in, and this included the U.S. and Britain. So this gave credence to an ideology of Zionism that had existed for a long time by essentially the idea of a Jewish homeland. And while different locations had been offered, people even suggested places south as South Africa, as I think Uganda, people had suggested other locations, it became much more clear to this group of people that they were going to try to settle in what was then British rule Palestine. As the area proved popular, the Jewish population in what was then Palestine increased by 160,000 people between 1932 and 1935. So this puts stress on the British occupation. There is then new immigration quotas in Palestine trying to limit the number of Jews. And right after World War II is over, as there are millions of Jews in Europe coming out of concentration camps, death camps, uh, ghettos that are looking to settle, they often find that the countries they are looking to settle back in where they grew up or where they were before the Holocaust, don't want them back. This included nations in the former Soviet Union, in Austria, in Germany, in Poland at the time. They were usually not welcome. Many of them end up on the island of, I believe, Cyprus in a British determined camp, hundreds of thousands of them, essentially to be held indefinitely until they're eventually settled. 
So many eventually do settle in British occupied Palestine, many through illegal routes. And that leads us up to the events of 1948, when Britain basically surrenders the region, basically states that they are no longer going to be occupying Palestine. And the UN decides that it was going to be two separate states. They define the borders. And then we get the events uh, up to 1948, as you described. And in 1948, that's when we see more than 750,000 Palestinians being forced to relocate, some of whom did settle in what is now Janine Camp, located in the West Bank. From there, we see that the total population living in urban areas are increasing. And over the next few decades, we do see more conflicts, unfortunately. So we're going to bring it up to what is currently happening today. But since you were able to give us that very helpful overview of going up to the late 1940s, can you now give us a little more clarity in how events unraveled as Israel declared independence and then taking us through the following conflicts, the Six-Day Wars, and the other nations that got involved essentially in these conflicts. Yes, most definitely. I also believe that in these discussions, we should break out like the type of facts or the focus into four different environments. One is the relationship between Israel and Palestine, or Israelis and Palestinians. Second is the internal politics within Israel. Third is the internal politics in Palestine. And fourth is the geopolitical situation of that region and outside actors. So you have like United States, Soviet Union, and the surrounding uh, Muslim states. So after Israel declares independence, five countries, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, declare war on Israel. They essentially invade the country. And this is right after Israel's government, after declared independence is recognized by both the United States and Soviet Union at the time, which at the time is seen as confirmed independence. Once you are confirmed independence by both superpowers of the Cold War, that was supposed to be a given. The Arab states essentially assumed that they could destroy the state of Israel, that there had larger armies, they had much more weaponry, they were not newly formed states. Some of them were, but not within the last few months. The war does not go well for them. Essentially, Israel is able to win the conflict. And in winning the conflict, there are, I want to phrase this carefully, there are multiple massacres of Palestinians in many villages. In terms of civilian casualties in times of war, this war is actually relatively unique in that there are fewer per capita instances of these, but war always brings travesty upon civilians. So there are multiple massacres. There's essentially a breakdown in many ways of local Palestinian communities. This happens at Haifa, where Ben-Gurion himself essentially was dismayed and surprised at the Muslim population leaving the city after they actually tried to get them to stay. This was because different networks of communications were telling them that they might get slaughtered, so they would have to leave. Uh, local community leaders were often fleeing, so individual families would just follow suit. So it's a combination of state violence and internal communities essentially organizing to leave. 
at the same time, over the next few years, 900,000 roughly uh, Jews from different surrounding Middle Eastern countries are also then forced to flee. They move for some personal reasons, better economic possibilities and opportunities within Israel, being in a country where they would be within the majority, but many are stripped of their wealth, their land, whatever property they have, and forced to flee. So in many ways, this is a very debated time. It is obviously very clear that Palestinians were, many in many cases, forced to flee and lost their lands in which they occupied. I think what's important here is that the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians in this case should be separated from Israelis and the surrounding Middle Eastern states. The surrounding Middle Eastern states forced by government decree Jews to flee. And that is often then taken to be an example of population transfer, similar to the partition of India and Pakistan, where communities were trying to go where they were the majority. It makes sense for safety, for stability. So after this happens and Israel becomes an independent state and there are Palestinians living in individual areas, they're living in Jordanian territory at the time in the West Bank, what is what it's called West Bank now. They were also living in a thin strip of land that Egypt had been able to control, which was Gaza. So coming up into... Let's we can just skip ahead. We don't need to really go over the Sinai Peninsula, the uh, Suez Crisis, that much. But there becomes a six day war. So in the six day war, which is one of the most fundamental conflicts in the history of Israel and Egypt and the surrounding region, Egypt has certain agreements with Israel over military armament, over waterways that Israel is allowed to use. And they begin violating those. Israel, Israeli intelligence essentially takes this as a sign that Egypt is preparing for conflict, amassing troops and arms. So Israel attacks with a preemptive strike, mostly by air assaults. In the Six Day War, you know, consequently named Six Days because it supposedly only took six days, Israel defeats the Egyptian army and conquers the Sinai Peninsula. They also defeat Syria, which was engaged in territorial disputes over the Golan Heights. And in this instance, this is seen as an embarrassment for the surrounding Muslim nations that once again, Israel won a military conflict against larger and better armed states. And this prompts the beginning of what many people now understand to be like the organized Palestinian resistance. There is immense embarrassment within Egypt over the conflict after uh Nasser is no longer there. His successor, Sadat, is essentially trying to reconquer the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt now launches a surprise attack along with Syria against Israel in order to reconquer the Sinai Peninsula, but also with the possible aim of extinguishing the Israeli state. That was also their stated goal. While the initial surprise attack does push Israel to some limits, Israeli military then regroups, rearms, and is able to defeat Egyptian military and Syrian military. It's also important to note at this time that Jordan, while it did send some troops, essentially tries to stay out of the conflict. Jordan at this time is now trying to form a much more neutral stance in this conflict and not be direct and uh, direct combat with Israel. So you continually see through these conflicts how fewer and fewer nations are trying to participate in these conflicts. Fewer of the surrounding Muslim and Arab states see it in their best interest 
to continually have direct military conflict with Israel. So after this Yom Kippur War, we essentially have then later on the Camp David Accords in 1978, where U.S. President Jimmy Carter arrived at what he called a framework for lasting peace. And these were the blueprint for a peace treaty that ended up having Egypt recognize Israel in order for the Sinai Peninsula to be transferred. So this was of immense significance for this time. Egypt and Israel had essentially been the two most conflicting nations with tens of thousands of soldiers dead between them and constant warfare. The difficulties after this, though, are twofold. Egypt is expelled from the Arab League for recognizing Israel and is essentially supposed to become pariah amongst the Arab world. And Sadat, who signed it, is assassinated within Egypt. So when we talk about the geopolitics of the time, essentially, this is largely the end of organized state militaries of surrounding countries trying to attack or trying to conquer Israeli territory. This is essentially the last of those conflicts, but it's not the last of the conflicts that will involve those militaries in more internal disputes or disputes within their own borders. That is more of the geopolitical situation at the time. If we look specifically at the internal Palestinian politics and how they interact, the Six-Day War is essentially seen as proof that the militaries of the surrounding states will not be able to conquer Israel and obtain the land for Palestinians for them to go back to. So you start seeing the organization of armed Palestinian resistance in much greater numbers under Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat, with many PLO members, so in this case, PLO refers to the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They and a lot of the refugees after the Six-Day War in the West Bank flee into Jordan. There is a small military battle that lasts roughly a few days in which Israel's military is turned back by a combination of PLO fighters and Jordan fighters. This immediately raises the popularity of what was called the Fayadin, which were PLO military members. Then Yasser Arafat with the PLO tries to unseat the government of Jordan to take it over and install a much more friendly government. They do this by trying to assassinate the ministers and the king at the time. In response, the king of Jordan, Hussein, essentially goes down hard with brutal military attacks on the Palestinian refugee camps and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and they flee. In most, some flee back into Israel, and many flee into southern Lebanon. But this is known as Black September the time in which a lot of the Palestinian refugees in the PLO are essentially expelled from Jordan. And this is very important for current Jordanian politics, where you can even see the Jordanian president says, we don't want any more refugees. After they flee into southern Lebanon, this creates a very tense situation in Lebanon, which is historically a very divided nation along Sunni, Shia, and Christian lines. There was an old census, I believe, that essentially said each group had roughly one third of the population, and there has not been a census since. That is because their goal is to split the government equally three ways. And if there was a new census showing that some of the population, maybe Sunni or Shia, is now 40 or 50 percent of the population, that would be seen as illegitimate. And they're very afraid of the internal strife that that would cause. After the PLO and many Palestinian refugees set up in southern Lebanon, they essentially create a state within a state. They set up checkpoints, they start policing the area, 
and they launch military rockets into uh, northern Israel, and they try to assassinate uh, an Israeli minister. Israel takes this as a cause of war and sends the military in to invade southern Lebanon. Uh, this creates a horrible situation in Lebanon in which you have Christian militia, right-wing militias murdering innocent uh, Islamic communities. You have retaliatory attacks by Shia right-wing militias and arms of the PLO attacking innocent Sunni communities and Christian communities. This doesn't end for decades. And Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, is consistently under siege and under attack. And eventually you have a Syrian occupation of Lebanon in order to essentially pacify the region. What we end up with now is Hezbollah, a very well-armed, very well-organized Iranian-backed militia that is currently pretty much in control of southern Lebanon. They can control who passes by. They continually launch rocket attacks into Israel, and they essentially are free from the government in Beirut from policing them. So that is the current situation now. We can stop there for now in the timeline. And obviously, I know you want to continue with newer points, so we can do that. So I think this is all very helpful. And the reason I do want you to give this timeline for our audience is because you have so much information to share. And I'll let you share more of the more notable, of course, it's all notable, but some of the more notable points for my goal is to show how our perspective is influenced by technology. So right now, we see social media influencing us, we see technology influencing us. And I'm curious to see what your thoughts are regarding how this influences people internally and externally. So for example, we've heard that during the Russian Ukraine war, a lot of Russians were fed propaganda. So they were fighting for a cause that they might not have necessarily been in line for. So one of my questions for you, and you can jump around if you want to continue on the timeline, but one of my questions is if you think that Israel is fully aware of the situation that they are fighting in or how they've been influenced by the social media, by propaganda, but also by technology that they are using, whether provided by America or more generally. Yeah, no worries. We can go back to the time later to basically bring it from like the 1980s to today. What essentially I have found through looking at social media information is also recognizing the internal politics of Israel right now. They have had, I think it was either five or six elections within recent years because it is very hard for any government that is formed to stay together and to be popular. Netanyahu, the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history, recently resorted to forming a government with extremely right-wing parties. These include people such as Ben Gavir, who was not even allowed in the Israeli military because of his radical ideology. This is a man who has a poster of the person who committed the massacre in the Cave of the Patriarchs on his mantle. This is a person who has made multiple statements of eradicating Palestinians, and Netanyahu has him in his government. Netanyahu's personal interests can diverge often from the goal of Israeli policy, but it can also direct it. That is one of the most difficult situations here. I should state for people who are not familiar, Benjamin Netanyahu was part of Israeli special forces. His brother, Yoni Netanyahu, was killed, was the only casualty in the raid on Tebe, which was a 
Israeli special operations military raid to save people who had been hijacked in Entebbe. And it was a resounding success. It's known today as like one of the bright spots in Israeli history for rescuing people with very few casualties. But Yoni Netanyahu died during that operation, was killed by extremists. So this is often speculated as having informed Benjamin Netanyahu's policies to be much more aggressive, nationalist, and unforgiving towards what he sees as Palestinian aggression. He has taken a much stronger nationalist and militaristic stance than many of the prime ministers before him. And this includes prime ministers such as Golda Meir, who served during Yom Kippur War, then during even more so than Menachem Begin, who was, you know, controversial at the time for having made much more militaristic and controversial statements. So Benjamin Netanyahu, it's very hard to speculate on exactly what he wants out of this conflict, but he has obviously directed multiple offices within his government to put out media and to put out tweets and to put out stories that are inflammatory, which does not serve the purpose of de-escalating the conflict. And it only serves the purpose of maybe riling up the base or moves for a ground invasion. So I also think definitely technology plays a role, but especially in the sense of internal Israeli politics, which is asking the question now, how did this happen? So the initial Hamas attack was multifaceted. Many soldiers came over the border, broke down the walls. They went into Israeli communities. They did attack some military outposts along the way, but their main goal seems to have been, you know, civilian communities that were not very well defended. Kibbutzes, the music festival, which has become infamous now. And one of the main questions is, how is Israel, which has the surveillance power of Pegasus, which is like one of the most developed anti-privacy softwares in the world with some of the best military intelligence and spy operations around the world that are renowned within Mossad, how did this happen in that they did not see it coming or were totally left unprepared? So I think technology plays a role in that. I think social media plays a role in that Netanyahu will often ignore or it will take social media posts or trending stories that are against Israel as proof that they should not listen to the outside world rather than the opposite. And so I think in that way that Biden's visit was an attempt to essentially try to de-escalate the situation. I think one of the most important things he said was, you don't want this to become Israel's 9-11, even though in many ways it is, because of the rage that came afterwards. So it, it might be comparable in many ways to the reaction 9-11 and the Iraq war and the invasion of Afghanistan in that it might be something that many people in Israel now see as inevitable, but something that will not be in the interest or will not have any almost good positive consequence in the end. And I think all those points are so important that you noted because, like you said, people are quick to share the most aggressive, the most violent news, the most clickable news. And Yes, we need to get to the facts, but that's also not necessarily the most important thing. It's understanding how to mitigate it and to stop it and less so to point fingers. And I think this can be furthered for 
different sides uh, narratives to help them sell their story regardless of the facts. Yes. So um, I think we left off around right before the first intifada. The first intifada comes along and is described as a shaking off of Israeli oppression. It begins with massive nonviolent protest, and some of those turn into violent clashes with Israeli police. 2,000 people end up being killed by the end. But the first intifada is different from what comes later, the second intifada, in its much more economic aspect of, and its boycotts and its desire for more nonviolent protest. This continues until the signing of the Oslo Accords. And the Oslo Accords were signed between Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin in 1993. And this was essentially to establish a Palestinian authority as the government of those regions. Then Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel, is later assassinated by a ultra-right wing Israeli who did not want the Oslo Accords, did not want any territory given up. Those Oslo Accords had become an extremely contentious issue within Israeli politics with massive protests both for and against it. And it was during a protest for peace, a protest in support of the Oslo Accords, that Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated. And this is seen in many ways as a turning point in Israeli politics in which the prospect of a permanent and lasting peace seems to have died. In 2000 to 2003, there is the second intifada. It began when Ariel Sharon, who was then the leader of the Likud party, visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. And this is seen as a very big offense to Palestinians and to Muslims. So many Palestinians started protesting, many initially peacefully. Israeli police then cracked down on the protest, but then the protests morphed into something much more violent. They escalate into many suicide bombings, suicide attacks, truck bombings, etc. on major highways, on major entries into different roads, cities, etc. And one of the most important things here isn't just, I mean, let me say both. The loss of life and the casualties and injuries during the second intifada are much higher than the first intifada, but the economic damage is much more severe. Imagine if New York City on a you know given year, there is an explosion from a truck bombing suicide bombing on the FDR Drive, on the GW, on, in the Holland Tunnel once every month. It would essentially shut down the city. It would shut down the traffic. People wouldn't feel that they would want to go and participate economically. And it essentially, I think, detracts 20% of GDP from both Israel and Palestine, which is a massive number when we talk about economics. So what happens in this way is that then there are, in the West Bank and in many areas, there are now border security and walls set up. This is essentially to prevent suicide bombing. Israel temporarily withdraws from Gaza in 2005 with a disengagement plan. And Hamas in 2006 wins the election in the Palestinian territory. So Hamas had began as a section of the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt that was then found root in Palestine. And while beginning as a humanitarian organization, it then quickly morphed into a much more militant armed resistance movement. The difference between Hamas and what is called Fatah or the older PLO is that Hamas is much more Islamic fundamentalist in their understanding and has basically stated their mission, which is to eliminate Israel and also Jews many times around the world. The PLO was a much more secular organization. 
that actually attracted a lot of adherents from around the world to their cause, from German left-wing dissidents, from Japanese left-wing dissidents, and found a lot more support amongst other countries. Hamas has not. Hamas's essentially ideal is a Sharia law, totalitarian, non-democratic, non-secular state controlled by them. And there have not been any elections since 2006, as Hamas does not allow it. So when Hamas unexpectedly wins a majority of council seats, the U.S. and Israel try to undermine it. They essentially try to provide aid to the Fatah commander at the region. And then there's a brief civil war that breaks out and Hamas defeats Fatah. So the remainder of Fatah now controls the West Bank, which is the area between Israel and Jordan and the Palestinian area there. So there's they're separated from Gaza. There is a growing fear that as currently Mahmoud Abbas, who is president of Fatah and who is 87 years old, it will be passing along soon. And that the grip that Fatah has on the West Bank is essentially gone, if it exists at all right now. That would mean that much more militant and Islamic fundamentalist organizations, such as Hamas, could take power in the West Bank, which would mean a much higher possibility of escalation of violence and deaths of people there. So there are continuous wars in Gaza. Operation Cast Lead, that happens where there are at least a thousand Palestinians and 12 Israelis left dead. There are multiple Israeli war crimes during these times with white phosphorus and essentially attacks that end up on civilian targets. This happened into 2021, where we see a major outbreak of violence after Israel threatened to evict Palestinians in East Jerusalem for settlements. And then that leads to settler violence. It leads to retaliatory attacks, etc. During this period of time, much of the violence is caused by a cycle, which is where Israeli settlers will try to push further into what is now called Palestinian territory. Many Palestinians at the time, some uh, backed by militant organizations, will resist and attack the settlers. And then Israeli defense forces are called upon to defend those settlements. There's also a growing divide within Israel, and there still is, over whether these settlements should exist at all, and many people do not. So the settlements are often pushed by much more ultra-right Orthodox uh, people within Israel. And many of these people do not currently serve in the military. They find an exemption through their religious service. So there is an internal political discussion within Israel that has always been controversial, which is that the people who call upon the IDF to defend them all the time do not are not required to serve in the IDF while the men and women of, you know, every other religious sect is required. So that sort of brings us to today, where on October 7th, Hamas launches the attack, and now we see the retaliation by Israel. So that's a lot to unpack. And even if there were pauses in conflict, there was clearly never really a time of peace between these regions. So how do you think things have been escalating even since the Israeli launch in July and how now, again, you've mentioned October 7th, do you think the increase in current attacks is their attempt to truly wipe out the Palestinian people as they so promoted? Or is there any hope to think that things might turn around given the increased escalation specifically this year? So I think this is where we get into the the breakdown of internal politics. One is that internal Israeli politics 
you would find that the people do not would not majority agree with the idea of wiping out Palestinians. That is a very unpopular idea. The support of killing two million people within Gaza is extremely unpopular. Even now, even after the attacks, if you were to poll, it would not be a popular opinion. I believe that Netanyahu and many members of his government believe that by taking an aggressive stance, by using collective punishment against Gaza, which I don't believe their aim is to wipe out all of Gaza and 2 million Palestinians, but I do believe their goal is essentially to create a significant damage, which will consequently result in many civilian deaths as a way to try to undermine Hamas's authority. And currently we're waiting to see if the planned ground invasion does occur. I believe that was the purpose of Biden's visit, which was to essentially, he can't control what Israel does, but he can ask them to either delay or stall the ground invasion of Gaza. Um, the news has come out that essentially they were given a green light, but Israel would not care about a green light at this point. Israeli military will not care about a green light under Netanyahu. They will go forward if they believe that this would be the way to wipe out Hamas. Personally, I don't think that's the case. Personally, I believe that if they go into Gaza, uh, there'll be a lot of civilian casualties. They will probably find much of Hamas's leadership. They will be able to target many of them. They might kill a lot of militants, but it will mean a lot of dead Israeli soldiers as well. It might mean escalation at other borders of the conflict, which I'll get to in a moment. And it will only inflame the militancy of the population of Gaza, which is very young. I believe it's over 50% of the population is under the age of 18. And so a lot of these children seeing violence today will grow up basically only thinking about the violence inflicted upon their community by Israeli soldiers and the cause of which will not matter in the future. So Hamas or even other militant organizations will essentially have plenty of recruitment opportunity in the future. And this could all happen again in 10 to 15 years. I think you made a very important note, which is that, yes, there is extreme violence being inflicted from both sides. But for the most part, a lot of Palestine doesn't stand by Hamas's actions. And for the most part, a lot of Israel doesn't stand by the Israeli government's actions. But it's how the whole story is being recorded and how it's being sold through media and social media specifically that's influencing people's opinions. So to tie it up, I have a twofold question. One is if you have any last comments. I know you said you wanted to touch on one more thing. And then two, I am interested to hear how and why in a way you are speaking about this because I know a lot of people are being retaliated against on speaking on such a matter because it obviously is a very sensitive topic. And I think it's one that we need to discuss with decorum and again, with kindness and open ears and ready to listen and learn. But do you are you worried about retaliation or how do you feel about speaking so openly about such a sensitive topic? So with retaliation, I do want to distinguish between what has happened with people like losing job offers and opportunities and actual innocent people being attacked on the street. And, you know, whether it's due to Islamophobia or anti-Semitism, which has increased, you know, synagogues being burned, people being attacked for wearing turbans because they're believed to be Muslim and attacks on innocent communities around the world due to that. That is what our mostly defines retaliation. It's an annoying thing to say, but no one is entitled to a job offer 
And unfortunately, companies will will often fire people or rescind offers if you state something publicly, especially law firms, because they're known for trying to keep tight-lipped about things and to be accessible to everyone. So retaliation-wise, I would say uh, I'm not very afraid. I'm not trying to promote any incendiary rhetoric. I'm mostly trying to state historical facts and how they led us to the current situation. So in that case, I'm I'm not afraid. Um, if people, you know, have a problem with what I say, I'm very open to discussion. If people have a problem with me being Jewish and think that immediately means that I am, you know, not trustworthy on statements, then that's their opinion. But nothing I'm gonna change for that. <laughs> and um, sorry, what was the first part of the question? It was, oh, and, other thoughts? Yes, and I do agree with you. I am very grateful that we are sticking to the facts because like I said, my intention, and it appears that yours as well, is not to influence people's opinions, but to give them information that they can use to create their own opinions, but we're sticking to the facts. And so are there any last facts that you think are of course, they're all notable again, but that are the more important pieces of the puzzle that might help us with how oh, things continue uh, to I would say there's, I'll try to limit it to two. It might end up being three. Uh, one is that there's an important situation regarding Egypt. Egypt shares a border with Gaza and apparently might open up some corridors to humanitarian aid. Egypt has a very heavily security and heavily fortified border with Gaza, and it does not allow refugees through. This is historically the case because two things. One is that when there were a mass of PLO and Palestinian refugees, uh, suicide bombings within Egypt increased immensely. It was seen as a very dark time in Egyptian history. And two is that Egypt currently has, I believe, over 8 million refugees at the time. Egypt has wars on all fronts across its borders. To the south, it has had Sudan and South Sudan. To the West, it has had Libya, which has been in low-grade civil war ever since Gaddafi has been gone, and it continually has now seen conflict within Gaza. So a massive population influx of Palestinian refugees into Gaza is not what the Egyptian government at all desires, similar to Jordan. So Palestinians are kind of wedged in on multiple fronts in that there are very few countries willing to take them in outside to escape the horrors within Gaza that are occurring right now. The second part, uh, point that I would want to uh, get at is that the planned Hamas attack was almost definitively supported by Iran and by its cohorts within Hezbollah. So the Iranian government, which I want to make sure people distinguish, is very different from the Iranian people. Um, it is not a representative government. It is not a democratically elected government. It is an oppressive government that has used brutal methods to stay in power and continues to do so. So that Iranian government supports Hamas and supports Hezbollah, which is the terrorist organization that is much better funded, larger and better equipped than Hamas to the north of Israel, and has essentially been organizing attacks against Israel as a way to create a wedge between Israel and Saudi Arabia, who were, many people speculate, were on the verge of signing a security and peace pact which would be instrumental for the region in essentially trying to put away a conflict that has occurred in many ways throughout decades. So that is Iran's stated goal. The third is sort of a plea to people in general. Watch out for what people I would call a strange bedfellows, 
which is when you agree on an issue, when you are so passionate about an issue, when you are so decisive about an issue, and you share tweets and post and stories from people and you support people and like their stories and tweets and you start following them, watch for not just what they say on that one issue, watch what they say on other issues. Because recently what we've seen is many left-leaning and liberal Jewish people within this country will often you know, post things almost either in support of Netanyahu or they'll post things shared by many right-wing groups in the United States that are, you know, very pro-Israeli military and essentially careless about Palestinian lives. Uh, on the other front, we see a lot of people who will post and share stories about Palestinian issues, which is very important, but will ignore that many of the organizations they're retweeting or supporting are fundamental Islamic and militant organizations throughout the Middle East, which essentially have, you know, horrific views on LGBTQ rights, women's rights, and against, you know, many ideas such as like democracy, etc. So just watch for who you do commit to communicating with, who you um, try to educate yourself by, and try to stick to the facts as much as possible to form your own opinions. And we don't have to be the quickest to share stories or the quickest to share news if we don't know fully what the story is. This is not to say that horrors are not being committed. They are. But it's important to get the facts right, especially when horrors are being committed. Not so we know who to lay blame to, but because it's very important for the people on the ground. I think that's a great point, Mark. So to our listeners, be kind, educate yourself, and as Mark said, don't be too quick to point fingers because it's too convoluted to simplify the matter in one post. If, if you have a friend who got a, a D in history and is sharing a thousand stories that night, they might not be the best equipped. You might want to look at um, a more verified source. That's a great point. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Tune in again for another episode of how we codify bias in tech through the context of history, psychology, and language. Thanks for listening and have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.